0: So before we dive into our text for this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, as you're turning there, I just want to remind you, or if you're new this morning, catch you up to speed on where we are. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark this entire year um, in a series entitled Rooted. And uh, this morning is our final uh, message in this mini-series within the series that is focused on the subject of healing, physical healing. And so we've spent the past two Sundays now, um, this is our third, examining eight different passages in Mark where we see Jesus miraculously heal people. And this morning, we'll wrap that up uh, by zooming in on just one story in particular here in Mark 2, 1-12, through Jesus' encounter with a paralytic. And uh, before we read our text, I need to confess uh, that I stole Or if you prefer, I borrowed uh, my outline for this passage that you see in your bulletins there uh, from a sermon that I heard David Platt uh, preach back in April at the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis uh, that a few of us attended together. So I have to give credit where credit is due, um, and I loved his sermon so much, and I figured you know they say all the best ideas are stolen anyways, um, that especially preaching on a a short week of preparation and even shorter week of sleep that... um, His outline really helped me kind of prepare my own thoughts. So thank God for David Platt. Um, But with that said, uh, would you all stand with me as you're able um, for the reading of God's word, Mark 2, 1 through 12. I'll read it for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that Jesus was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as we're going to see and study here in a minute, your word is powerful has the power to change us, to transform our lives, turn us upside down. So, Father, I pray that you would do just that this morning. If there are any here this morning who don't know you, you would use this story of physical and spiritual healing um, to heal someone. Uh, and for those of us who do know you, um, we want to grow in our understanding, and our relationship, and our faith, In our love for you this morning. Father, would you speak to us through the power of your word and open our eyes to see you for who you are, that we might love you more deeply this morning. Thank you for loving us first and enabling us to be called and to come and to love you. It's in Christ's name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. So here is Platt's outline for this passage. We find one central theme. You see in your bulletin there, one central theme driven by two urgent needs, which highlight three characteristics of Jesus, precipitated by four faithful friends, all of which leads us to five expectations in evangelism. All right, got that? One, two, three, four, five. So here we go. One central theme, the primacy and power of Jesus' word. That is the central theme of this passage, and indeed, all of Mark's gospel. This story is not primarily about physical healing. It's not primarily about community and the power of friendship. It's not even mostly about the relative importance of spiritual versus physical healing. More than anything, this is a story about the primacy and the power of Jesus's word. Jesus's word is primary. It is first. It is ultimate. It is of ultimate importance, and it is powerful. It is authoritative effective, transformative. That is central here. That is what has been central in every passage that we've studied in Mark's gospel thus far. Think back with me, Mark chapter one, it opened with Jesus' baptism and anointing where God publicly acknowledges that Jesus is his beloved son with whom he is well-pleased. In other words, Christ is God's word incarnate, the word from John one, who is so primary, he was in the beginning with God who is so powerful that all things were made by and for and through him. And then we looked at the most important verse in the Bible, Mark 1.15, where Jesus articulates the gospel for us, this gospel that holds the power of God for salvation for all who would believe. And Jesus not only defines the gospel there, but Mark 1.14, he proclaims it. It is by the power and primacy of his word that we have a gospel at all that is able to save us. And then Jesus calls his disciples, Mark 1, 16 to 20. He literally calls them, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And the power of Jesus' word proves primary in these men's hearts such that we are told immediately they drop their nets and they follow him. And then in verses 21 through 28, Jesus' first encounter with a demon, which launched us into a, three, a two-part conversation, uh, series on exorcisms, uh, 12 passages where Jesus tangles with demons. In every passage, what is primary? What is the power by which demons are cast out and conquered? It's his word. Mark 1 27, the people were all amazed saying, what is this? A new teaching, his word with authority, with power and primacy. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. It is Jesus' word. And time and time again, passage and passage again, the takeaway for us from Mark's gospel is not 10 steps to physical healing. It is not strategies for overcoming the demons in your life. It is not anything about what you and I have done or could do or should do, but rather it is about what Jesus has already done for us by the power and primacy of his word. He speaks and the demons flee. He speaks and the blind regain their sight. He speaks and the dead come to life. That is the real story here. That is the, the stage that is being set here in Mark 2. The power and primacy of Jesus' word is on full display, and it's driven by the urgent needs of one unnamed paralyzed man. Two urgent needs. This man has an evident physical need, but he has an even more ultimate spiritual need. Ev- evident physical need, ultimate spiritual need. We've seen this theme in other texts as well that we've studied, this idea that our physical well-being is important to Jesus, but it's not as important as our spiritual health. Nowhere is that theme more prominent, more explicit than here in the story of the paralytic in Mark 2. Consider this scene with me. Imagine with me that you are one of the man's four friends for a moment. His physical need is certainly evident to you. You have prayed for your poor friend for years now. You've taken him to every physician and faith healer in the Galilean region. You are heartbroken for your friend who is stuck lying there, motionless all day long, utterly dependent on a few close friends like you for mere survival. And frankly, caring for his infirmities has taken a toll on your own mental and emotional health as well. But then you catch wind of this traveling miracle worker named Jesus. And you get word that he's actually passing through Capernaum right now. And so you rally your other friends. You you jerry-rig a quick mobile pallet. You hustle as fast as you can manage to Jesus, bouncing and balancing your friend along the way. And when you arrive, you find the house is already packed, people spilling out the door. You try pushing your way forward, but the crowd doesn't budge. So, you start to lose hope when one of your other friends hatches a Hail Mary plan. Hey, what if we go down through the roof? And in desperation, you hoist your friend up, you pull yourselves up, and you go to work, digging through layers of thatch and dried mud, standing between your desperate friend and Jesus. You hear shouts from below Hey, who's up there? What's going on? What are you doing to my roof? And Jesus himself becomes so distracted by the dirt and the straw falling on his head that he stops preaching. After a few minutes of feverish demolition, when the hole is big enough, you begin lowering your friend down to Jesus. And by the time his mat rests on the floor, the crowd has grown silent. And Jesus looks up at you, and he looks back down at your friend as you anticipate the moment that you've longed for, that your friend your paralyzed friend has longed for since his diagnosis years ago. And Jesus locks eyes with him. He opens his mouth and he declares, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Confused, you turn back to your other three friends. Did, did we mishear him? Did Jesus badly misread this situation? Like surely if he has the power to heal supernaturally, he's got the common sense to see that you are not here for the forgiveness of sins. You, you, you cart him down to the temple once a year for that. If you wanted his sins forgiven, you could have just offered a goat sacrifice to the local priest. No, you carried him all the way across town in the scorch, scorching Galilean sun for physical healing, because you believed the hype that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah of Isaiah 35, the one through whom the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer. But your lame friend is not leaping like a deer. He's still laying there like a dead deer on the mat. Maybe Jesus isn't any different, after all, from the other phony healers and charlatans. And while you are disappointed, you notice the looks on the faces of others down below who appear to be outraged. But before you or they can speak up to question Jesus on all of this, he speaks up and questions you. Don't you realize that you are the ones who are misreading the situation here? What is more difficult for me to physically heal a few faulty muscles and nerve endings or to cancel an eternal spiritual debt of separation from God and reconcile a wretched, undeserving, hell-bound sinner with his holy, perfect creator forever. And after letting that bombshell sink in for a moment, Jesus says "But because your faith is weak, just to prove it to you, brother, go ahead, stand up, take your mat walk home. And he does. The man's physical healing from paralysis here seems almost inconsequential to Jesus in comparison to his forgiveness of sins. As Platt says, all our physical suffering ultimately goes back to a spiritual source anyway. The fall in Genesis 3 When sin entered the world, so did suffering and pain of all sorts. Our ultimate problem, therefore, is that we are separated from God by sin in a world that is full of suffering. So our ultimate need is not to be rid of our maladies, but to be reconciled to our maker. And just in case the rest of the roof caves in, and Jesus only has time to heal one or the other, Jesus prioritizes the more important ultimate need first, to be reconciled to his maker. Fortunately, for the paralytic, Jesus is sovereign over roofs too. The roof holds, and the man leaps up like a deer. Friends, do we believe that whatever physical needs are evident in our lives at this moment, whatever sickness you're facing, whatever financial woes you're facing, do we really believe that those are always, at best, only secondary to our eternal spiritual need. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as we hunger and thirst for that job promotion? For another child? For the doctors to find a cure? If the ultimate source of all our problems is spiritual, then the ultimate solution must be as well. That is the kind of healing we need, and that is exactly the kind of healing that Jesus offers us. How? Because Jesus has ultimate authority. Specifically, we see his authority in three unique ways here, three characteristics of Jesus. Number one, his authority to read hearts. Look back with me at verses six through eight. The scribes don't say a word. They don't have to say a word. Mark says they question in their hearts and that Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. This is that age-old would-you-rather question. Would you rather have the power of invisibility or be able to read minds? The correct answer is invisibility. You do not want to read minds. I promise. If you read my mind, we will not stay friends for very long. And I like to think that I'm not uniquely critical and that bad as a human that we 're all like you wouldn 't have any friends, because we can be a petty, judgmental, critical, hypocritical bunch, and I, I think that half the anguish that Jesus experienced while he was on earth was probably due to this power to read minds. Can you imagine being in the middle of delivering the most famous, most momentous sermon? In history, the Sermon on the Mount, preaching your heart and soul out, and you are Jesus, mind you, and looking over and supernaturally overhearing Peter, thinking to himself, I wonder what we're having for dinner tonight. <laughs> and I hope he multiplies some more of that sea bass. That was delicious. <laughs> or healing someone and then commanding her, now don't go tell anyone about this. But you can hear her thoughts bubbling up from within her heart. She's saying to herself, this is amazing. I can't wait. Just wait until Matthew and Mark and Luke and John hear about this. So you call her out. You are definitely going to disobey me and tell everyone about this, aren't you? She says, no, Jesus. But like, you're also hearing her heart. Yes, Jesus. You know, it would just be awful. And such was life for the Son of God. Jesus still commands the authority to read our hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I don't know about you, but for me, the more difficult truth to believe isn't that Jesus has the power to forgive sins and bring us back into right relationship with the Father. The harder thing for me to believe is that he knows the depths of my heart and he still wants to. I don't struggle really anymore to accept Jesus' ability to forgive me. I struggle to accept his desire to do so. And yet, because of Jesus, it is because of Jesus that we can sing. It's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known, and loved by you. Amen. Secondly, Jesus has the authority to heal sickness. We've spent uh, three weeks on this point now, so I won't beat a dead horse, but it does bear reminding that even if I did, Jesus could bring that dead horse back to life. Because he has all authority, not just over sickness and disease and physical death, but number three, his authority to forgive sins means that he has power over spiritual death to The separation that our sin previously caused between us and God, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. As Platt says, the irony here is that the scribes were right. Only God can forgive sins. And yet what they failed to see was that God in the flesh was standing right in front of their eyes. And this is the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in all the world, that God has not left sinners alone in a world of sin and suffering, that God himself has come to us, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we deserve for our sins, and he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, and now he offers reconciliation to God for anyone, anywhere, who repents and believes in him. This is the gospel. And yet, sadly, when it comes to healing... It is not the gospel that is being preached in many places around the world today. There are so many places where a false gospel is being proclaimed that if you believe in Jesus, you will be healed of all your diseases now, that if you trust in Jesus, you'll be free of your sicknesses today. It is not the gospel, Platt says, because the gospel is much, much better news than that. The gospel is not going to Africa and saying, trust in Jesus and your HIV/AIDS will be gone. The gospel is not going to America and saying, trust in Jesus and your cancer will be gone. The gospel is going anywhere and everywhere in the world and saying, trust in Jesus and your sins will be gone. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. Which brings us to point number four: four faithful friends. And this might be the most shocking part of the entire passage for us today, as, as Protestants living in a hyper-individualized culture. I wrote a whole term paper about uh, in Divinity School on this one pronoun in verse 5, al tone their. When Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. He said to the paralytic, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" Any way you slice this passage, this is a tough pronoun for evangelical Christians to explain theologically. We have been taught to believe that when it comes to faith, the faith required for the forgiveness of our sins, it's every man for himself. That no one else's faith has any bearing on your standing with Christ. There's no such thing as being born a Christian The choice to receive or reject Jesus is a personal, individual one that every person must make for him or herself. So, why does Jesus, in every version, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of this story in the Gospels, why does he look upon their faith before forgiving the man of his sins? Obviously, the paralytic's personal faith must be included somehow in the the plural there, But it still doesn't explain what the rest of their faith has to do with his forgiveness. We could preach a whole sermon on this, but I think that the takeaway for us has to be that our faith matters in others' lives. Like in really, really important ways, our faith matters. Like forgiveness of sin kind of ways that, And I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that my faith can save someone else. I'm not saying my my faith can save my three-year-old daughter. But at a minimum, it seems clear here that if and when Ellery eventually comes to a saving faith in Jesus of her own, it will not be on her own. Do you catch the distinction there? Ellery's future relationship with Jesus will be a faith of her own, but not on her own. Friends, our faith can deeply affect that of others. I think sometimes in our hyper-individualized world, we use that as an excuse to sort of shirk the responsibility of evangelism. We're we're headed towards five points on evangelism. And we can use this to shirk our responsibility and say, well, that's, that's between them and God. But our faith deeply affects that of others. Look at this this passage. How did the faith of these four friends affect the paralytic? First, their faith was confident. I can imagine the paralytic might have given up believing long ago that he would ever be healed. But when he saw how convinced his friends were that Jesus was able to help him, I imagine that gave him hope as well. Second, their faith was compassionate. I imagine the paralytic may have also felt some guilt about this whole thing. Like he must have known how much trouble he kind of is to his friends and the idea of them carting him all the way across town only to be met at the door, not to be able to get in. He must have felt like such a burden until his friends bent down and looked him in his tearing up eyes and said, we don't have to do this for you. We want to do this for you. We love you. Their compassion moved this man to faith. Their faith was creative. The great lengths that they went to when their original plan was foiled, it must have inspired further faith in the paralytic when they arrived at the house and they couldn't see Jesus over the crowds. I I imagine the paralytic lying on his bed, looking at people's knees, closing his eyes, starting to lose hope again. Next thing he knows, his heart jumps in his throat as he's hoisted high in the air and dropped on the roof. Then he sees his friends literally tearing the roof off the place to get him in to Jesus. That must have made him believe. Like maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is actually going to work. And finally, their faith was contagious. I imagine myself being on that mat, being lowered down, looking up into the faces of my four friends and seeing the hope on their faces, the anticipation of what Jesus is about to do. And it finally erases any last shred of doubt that's left in me. Their hope is contagious. And it is this kind of corporate, contagious Faith that leads us to five expectations in evangelism. Most Christians don't read this as a story about evangelism, a commentary on evangelism. That's what our conference that we went to in April was about, and so Platt tied it back into evangelism, but Platt ties everything back into evangelism, because that's just who he is. Like what are we here for? We're here for the Great Commission. And indeed, if our faith really can affect others' faith in such a profound way, we would be remiss not to point out the implications this story should have for our own sharing of the gospel. First, we meet spiritual needs by proclaiming Jesus' word. In our relationships with unbelievers, we must remember brothers and sisters, that their physical, emotional, relational needs are important, but they are not most important. What your unbelieving sister, who is cheating on her spouse and living an open rebellion of god 's will for her life, needs most from you is not marriage advice. What she needs is Jesus. What your unbelieving cousin, who just got diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer, needs most from you is not a sympathetic listening ear. What he needs most is Jesus. What your unbelieving coworker, who's kind of weird, kind of a social outcast in the office, what she needs most from you is not your friendship. She needs Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't also give marital advice and lend a listening ear and befriend the outcast and buy the homeless person lunch and pray for physical healing and go to Bridge of Hope and go to Del Mar Gardens and do all the things we're going to do during serve week. It doesn't mean we don't do those things. It just means that we realize that all these things are secondary in importance to the real need, the deepest need, if this person does not know Jesus. And that we look to use those things as avenues, as vehicles, as means to a greater end of telling them about Jesus. Because no one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. And how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So friends, let us make the proclamation of the word of Christ primary and powerful in our lives. Like the paralytics friends, let us share our faith with confidence, compassion, creativity, and contagiousness. Second, we meet physical needs by embodying Jesus's love. Maybe you've heard that uh, famous quote falsely attributed to um, St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. The point being that actions speak louder than words. You live the gospel out in your life and let your actions do the talking. The problem with that quote and that philosophy is that the gospel isn't a lifestyle. The gospel is literally news. It's good news. It is an announcement. Is a proclamation. So you can be as nice as you want to that office coworker and hope that she sees a difference in you and hope that Christ's love and light shines through you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you should do all those things. But for you to hope that through all of that, she's going to somehow magically hear about God's holiness, her sin, Jesus's sacrifice for her and her need to turn to him in faith, is unrealistic. We should do these things. Bridge of Hope, Del Mar Gardens, People's Community Action Center, You know all the opportunities we've got out there, all the opportunities you have in your day-to-day lives to meet physical, emotional, relational needs, embody Jesus' love for people incarnationally, feeding the hungry, caring for the downtrodden. These are all profoundly biblical, important, good things for us to do as believers. And it really is true that most of the time, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We've all heard that too, and it's true. So most of the time, if you want to be effective at evangelism, just from a practical standpoint, it makes sense to do that on the tail end of meeting someone's physical need. So we we do things like serve we, but we also look for opportunities to preach the gospel, with words, not when necessary, but whenever possible. Why would you limit how much we we tell people with words, explicitly the gospel? You need Jesus to tell them that, which is number three. We persevere in personal evangelism, full of faith. The great Charles Spurgeon once said, brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let the, not anyone go there unwarned and unprayed for. Here's how Platt puts it persevere in faith that is confident in the power of the gospel to save. We talk much of the challenges of evangelism in our age, and they are indeed many. But I want to exhort us to be full of faith that when we bring people to Jesus, he will show his power to save. We will not prove faithful if we talk more about how hard the ground is than we talk about how great the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and Jesus will show his power when we share his word. So let's persevere in confident, compassionate, loving, creative faith. We strategize and plan for so many things, Platt says. We, we strategize and plan for worship services in the church. What's the order of our worship going to be? We, we plan programming in the church. I'll just personally, this is Will now. I spent a full 30 seconds coordinating this outfit this morning. And I will admit to you, that is 30 seconds longer than I have strategized and planned yet today for how I'm going to share Jesus with my unbelieving family and friends. Let's bring creativity, that kind of creative strategy, planning. Let's bring confidence. The gospel is greater than the ground is hard. Let's bring compassion. If someone you loved, friends, was skydiving, out of a plane, getting ready to jump out of the plane, and forgot to strap on their parachute. It might embarrass them a little bit for you to point that out. Okay, like, hey, dude, you, you want to put a parachute on first? That might embarrass them a little bit. I don't think they would mind. I mean, seriously, let's, let's think about what is happening when we, when we let the world's you know, lies about offending people stepping on their toes, even have a place in the discussion about evangelism. It has no place in the discussion. There may be a fleeting moment of awkwardness to tell your family, your friends, your co about Jesus. But I bet they'd be glad that you risked that slight awkwardness, just like the, the parachute, to save their life. Are people going to hell without Jesus? That's the only question that, that matters. Not offensiveness, not how well I know you, how deep the relationship is. Are they going to hell without Jesus? Do they know him or not? That's, that's the question. Let's make our faith contagious. Do unbelievers want the kind of life that we have? Do they look at our lives and say, man, I want a life like that. And when we do all of that, and people still don't believe, we persevere We press on. We keep sowing gospel seeds full of faith because we know that God is not done with them yet. God has not given up on them yet. Fourth, persevere in global missions focused on the unreached. Um, Just got one minute left. Didn't leave myself enough time for this. Uh, But this is a topic for further later discussion, especially with our missions team as a church. Um, Japan needs missionaries, Brazil needs missionaries, Sweden needs missionaries. But over two billion people, almost a third of the world's population, still has no access to the gospel. They might live 40, 50, 60 years and die and literally have never heard the name of Jesus. That's a problem. That should be a problem for us in the church. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Romans 10. Who's going to go? Who's going to go to them? Are we going to go? Are we going to be ascending church? Unreached peoples. Finally, number five, we never lose hope. Because while our confidence and our compassion ought to motivate our evangelism, we never lose hope because we can rest in the hope that no one's salvation lies ultimately in your power to save them. You know All these five takeaways about evangelism, it, we should leave here motivated because of what we see going on in this passage, motivated to share Jesus with people. But at the end of the day, we rest in the hope that their salvation lies ultimately not in our hands. It's out of our hands. Their eternal destinies lies in much bigger hands than mine or yours. Hands that are actually able to save them. And Micah 7:18, hands that delight in doing so. Delight, the Lord delights in showing mercy. And so we never lose hope. Like the person in your life that you've prayed for the longest, that you have the least confidence. If you were a betting person, you'd be tempted if it wasn't such a depressing bet. To put money on the fact that I just don't think this person's ever, I mean, the ground could not be harder. This person w- will never come to faith. Whoever that person is, we never lose hope. Because if he saved a wretch like me, and he saved a wretch like you, he can save a wretch like them too. Amen? Let's pray.